Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Let me begin with two questions. What image do you have in your mind of God? How would you describe God? I'm guessing that each of you who might be listening this morning would answer that question somewhat differently. Perhaps you would speak of an elderly individual with a beard sitting on a throne. Perhaps you would um, consider Jesus in heaven sitting at the footstool of the heavenly throne. Perhaps you would consider God to be a powerful force, an energy field, enlivening and energizing the entire universe. The images that we have of God are numerous. And yet the belief in a supernatural being or being known as God or gods has played a central role in the lives of human beings since ancient times. We know that the perception of God as well as the characteristics ascribed to God have varied considerably from time to time and place to place. Since there is no universally recognized conceptualization or definition of God, this morning what I want to do is try and understand the Jewish grasp of God as described in the text of our particular tradition. And it should become evident, at least I hope it will be, that through the course of time, how we Jews have apprehended God and spoken of God has changed and modified. So let us begin, not at the very beginning, but in a different place. Vayomer Moshe el Elohim, hine anochi ba el b'nei Yisrael va'amarta le'em Elohai avotechem. Shalachachni Alechem Vaamruli Mashmo Ma Omar Alehem. Moses said to God in Exodus three thirteen, When I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is the name of this God? What shall I say to them? Vayomer Elohim el Moshe, 
And God said to Moses, Ehiyah asher Ehiyah. He continued, Thus shall you say to the Israelites, Ehiyah sent me to you. And God further said to Moses, Thus shall you speak to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This shall be my name forever. This my appellation for all eternity. What a mysterious dialogue. Moses has requested to know God's name. What is it that Moses requested? And what is it that God seems to mean in his veiled response? You can hear that Moses is quite reluctant about his calling to go to Egypt and redeem the Israelites from their bondage. Envisioning their reaction, he challenges God. He seems to be saying, let's say that I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is this God's name? Then what shall I tell them? It may be that this question about God's name is much more than it appears to be. God has already identified himself to Moses as the God of his fathers and forefathers. Is that not enough identification? Would that not suffice in letting the Israelites know to whom, or better, to which God Moses is making reference? Perhaps. The question of God's specific identity is not the issue in the text. Moses and the Israelites, in spite of how long they have been in Egypt, know very well which is the God of their fathers. So why the question, you might ask? Just before this, Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go? And God answered, It is not you. But rather me, I will take them out of Egypt. So now Moses follows up, essentially asking God, who are you to be sending me before Pharaoh? Who are you to be promising deliverance? Who are you to set Israel free from the Pharaoh? What will I tell the people so that they will believe that you can do it? The question, therefore, about God's name is not so much a question about identity, but about qualifications. Are you powerful enough to do this? Are you authorized to do this? Remember, all of us, both listening and in the text, Pharaoh was the name of a god. Perhaps Moses in this very mysterious dialogue is asking, what is your name compared to that of Pharaoh? God seems, one might think, to understand this question quite well, and so God answers, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. The Hebrew is very obscure and difficult to translate. The question of God's name is not a philosophical one, but one of power. 
In Egypt, Pharaoh is the divine power. In Egypt, Pharaoh has constructed a reputation and reality that asserts he is and always will be. Life in Egypt is Pharaoh today, Pharaoh tomorrow, Pharaoh forever. In other words, Pharaoh was, is, and will be. When God says, I am or I will be, God is promising to upturn the world that Pharaoh has created for himself in Egypt. In essence, one could suggest that God is answering Moses, tell the people, I am, and Pharaoh is not. Pharaoh's power is no match for God's power. Tell that to the Israelites. A Midrashic interpretation, a um, story that's used to interpret obscure biblical texts suggests that God's answer here means to instruct the people that God will be manifest in the world parallel to the way people behave. If the people open their hands with generosity, so will God be generous to them. If they refrain from reaching out to others, so will God refrain from reaching out to them. Perhaps God's clandestine answer here should be translated as an indication that there is no one answer to the question of understanding of God, of identifying God's single identity. God will ultimately be understood and interpreted in many different ways by many different people. So let me give you another quote, this time also from Exodus. Let us see what this tells us about the Israelite understanding of God. I bet some of you will recognize these verses. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above, on the earth below, or on the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God and an impassioned God, visiting guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. What can we learn about God from this text? The opening passage of what in Hebrew is known as the Aserita de Brot, the Ten Commandments, begins by God, by telling us that God spoke these words. God spoke all these words, and then God introduces himself as the God who took the Israelites out of Egypt. God proceeds to issue a list of commandments. The text alone sheds light on several important dimensions of the ancient Israelites' understanding of God. God speaks to humankind. Now, whether this speech can be compared or recorded in the same manner as human speech is a totally different issue. God plays an active role in history. 
tells us that God redeemed the Israelites from Egypt. The fact that God chose to identify himself as the one who redeemed the Israelites from Egypt rather than as the creator of the universe may suggest that the Torah understood God's role in history as having even greater significance in his role in creation. The text tells us that the God of the Torah has a special relationship with the people of Israel. And the Torah tells us that God is not morally neutral. He is a commanding God who demands compliance to a particular set of commandments known as mitzvot. In our biblical text, we use the compound name of God, yud heh vav Yahweh Elohim. At times in the biblical text, only one or the other of these names appears, and at times they come together. In Genesis 21, God is referred to only by the word Elohim, translated as God. Whereas in Genesis chapter 2, God is consistently referred to as Yahweh Elohim, translated as Lord your God. Yahweh is regarded throughout the Tanakh as the personal name of God, and it is referred to as the Tetragrammaton, Greek for having four letters. And although the precise meaning of the name is uncertain, some suggest that it derives from the verb to be, exactly the way God is describes himself in our first text this morning. I will be who I will be. Owing to the reverence associated with the name of God, the rabbis prohibited committing names of God to writing in order to prevent their erasure. Although the text here does not explain the meaning or significance of each of the names of God, the clear and conscious use of different titles in the two texts is an indication that the biblical author is conveying something important about the nature of God through the names of God. The ancient rabbis suggest that yud vav reflects midat rachamim the attribute of mercy, whereas Elohim reflects midat hadin, the attribute of justice. In this way, the ancient rabbis taught the Jewish people that the use of different names for God is intentional. They're not nicknames. Each one reflects a fundamentally different aspect or attribute of God. In other words, according to the rabbis, God created a world that would be governed both by God's attributes of justice and God's attributes of mercy. In later rabbinic texts, the rabbis explain that God's rationale for creating the world in this way, if the world had been created strictly with justice, it would eventually cease to exist. Because humankind, the rabbi said, would always be found guilty. If the world had been created strictly with mercy, humankind would always be forgiven, sin would become rampant. The only solution would be for God to govern the world with both attributes, says the rabbis. 
Thus, we see that the names of God reflect the essential characteristics of God's interaction with the world. Now, I have just mentioned only two of the names of God that we find in Torah, but there are many more. Some of you, you know. El, from which the name Elohim is apparently derived. El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty or God of Heaven. Adonai, my Lord. Adonai Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts. Takodesh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He. Ribono Shalom, Master of the Universe. Hamakom, the Omnipresent. Harachamim, the All-Merciful. Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in Heaven. Kadosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel, Shekhinah, the Divine Presence. Aside from the significance of the names used by God to identify Himself here, these first lines share much more detail about God. The text from Exodus teaches that God is an all-knowing, zealous ruler who rewards and punishes rewarding those who follow God's instructions and punishing those and the descendants of those who do not. In this context, we are struck with a sense of fear of God and his power. Yerat Hashem, fear of God, is a fundamental aspect of the Jewish relationship with God in the ancient days. Another aspect, which at first glance might seem run to counter to Yerat Hashemayim, is introduced by this phrase from Deuteronomy 6. The most important phrase in the Hebrew text about God, some of you, of of course, know that which I'm referring to, the Shema. So let me read it to you in its context. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. Some would translate it, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Take to heart these instructions which I charge you this day. Impress them upon your children. Recite them when you stay at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign upon your hand and let them serve as a symbol on your forehead. Inscribe them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In Hebrew, of course, we know this as Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The Shema is widely known. Prayer that comes originally from this biblical text. Moses addresses the people at the critical moment prior to his death and their entrance into Israel, reminding them that the God of Israel is one in spite of all God's names. This became the foundational statement of Jewish belief and ultimately the very basis of all monotheism. Belief in the oneness of God was a direct attack on the prevalent polytheistic beliefs of the ancient world. This central Jewish text introduces another fundamental principle that describes our relationship to God called Ahavat Hashem, love of God. While it is difficult to understand how the Torah can command an emotion, here the emotion of love, 
Yes, you shall love the Lord your God. This commandment is often translated into actions which serve to demonstrate this love. However, at its base, Ahavat Hashem relates to a certain mindset, a warm feeling of closeness and intimacy with God. For those of you who are practicing Christians and who use the word love of God so easily and use the word love as part of your faith commitment, here is a great reminder that in Deuteronomy, the Jewish people are told to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Take to heart these instructions which I charge you this day. But rather than leave it in the emotional level of love, which is so hard to explain how to manifest, Jewish tradition translated that commandment of love into physical activities. It's one of the great gifts of the Jewish world to the world. Let me continue on that theme of love. The Rambam, Rabbi Moses Ben Maimonides, a 12th century philosopher and legal codifier, wrote the following. He says, what is the appropriate love? Is it that he should love God a great, excessive, intense love to the point where his soul is bound up with the love of God and he finds himself thinking about God all the time as if he was lovesick? That condition is preoccupied with the love for a certain woman, never ceasing to think about her whether he is sitting back or on the go, eating or drinking. More than that, Should the love of God be in the thoughts of those who love him all the time, as he commanded with all your heart and with all your soul? This 12th century commentator describes Ahavat Hashem as comparable to the feeling of being lovesick, that is, unable to think of anything else other than God. Such a relationship with God places God at the very center of one's life as the be-all and end-all of one's purpose in this world. One must, according to Ramonides, become obsessed with God in pursuit of fulfillment of the instruction to love God with all of one's heart and with all our souls. This is admittedly a profound goal and out of reach for most of us. And yet, describing a relationship with God in these terms informs us of the great potential that exists for experiencing an intimate personal closeness with God. According to Maimonides, love of God includes acknowledging the imminence of God in our lives, of God's desire that we aspire to be a very individualized association with God. At the same time, acknowledging the transcendent and all-powerful God. So Jewish tradition tells us that there is the transcendent God, but there is the imminence of God. In order to build such a relationship with God, it would be important to have a sense of where God is to be found. People often think of God as residing somewhere up there in heaven, removed from the world. And many prayers in Judaism 
actually a dress god as such. The notion is found in various places throughout the Tanakh. Psalms 115, our God is in heaven, or look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place. Hasidism, the latter introduction in the 18th century, uh, brought a strong sense of imminence and accessibility as opposed to the Tanakh. And let me quote for you, one ought to know that God is the fullness of the world and that there is no place empty of him and he fills all and accompanies all. According to this Hasidic text, the power of the creator remains within the creation. In this way, all of creation, the fullness of the world, is likewise a manifestation of and therefore a mechanism for returning to God the creator. We can access God everywhere. God is not beyond our reach. Even more, according to Rav Nachman of Retzlaff, the author of this statement, God is present inside each and every one of us. It's not a matter of reaching out to God. It's not a matter of yearning to cling or to bring God into our lives. De facto, God encompasses all. So too, God is within us. In fact, this perspective suggests that each of us is actually a part of God, for there is nothing beyond God. What is the implication of suggesting there is nothing besides God? that all of nature is God. God is present in all natural physical objects. Early scholars suggested that the Hasidic movement had subscribed to its own brands of pantheism, and that view of the universe and God is identical. However, Hasidism actually maintains not that nature is God, but that nature is within God and that God himself is transcendent, extending without limits well beyond the earthly sphere, boundless and timeless. Now let me say, in this brief time that is available to me, Hasidism made the following statement. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Morgenstern of Kutz wrote, Where is God to be found in the place where he is given entry? Faith is a leap in which we strive against all odds to come to God. Our ego and selfish needs separate us from the divine. Life, according to this Hasidic scholar, rabbi, Rav, life is one long struggle to find God. How quickly we move from the biblical text, which it is so... Um, certain about what God constitutes and how do we describe God in biblical language to the more esoteric concept of love of God, which requires us to make a transition from the physical to the emotional, and then to the Hasidic in the 17th, uh, 18th, and 19th century, who challenge us to find God not on Mount Sinai, but in our hearts and in our everyday life. What image do you have of God? That's how I began. How would you describe God? That's the questions I asked you. Those are the questions I asked you at the beginning, and now I ask you again. Has your image of God grown as you've grown? Has it changed as your faith has matured? My Jewish tradition tells me that we are in an eternal search for who God is and how to find God in our lives. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten bidding you good day and shalom. Shalom.